Father, we ask that you would speak to us in a powerful way today. We ask that Jesus would be lifted up, that we would be led to the cross, that we would be led to to bow at the foot of the cross, to recognize that there is nothing in us capable of living up to the life you've called us to live, and yet that there is all the grace and power needed in Jesus Christ. Father, please speak to us through the power of your word. For your namesake and your glory, in the precious and holy name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Do you remember the advice that your mom gave you growing up? Does it still ring in your ears sometimes? You know, there'll be moments where I'm about to go to bed and I suddenly hear that voice in my mind saying, you better go brush your teeth. Did you brush your teeth yet? Then there are other things that my mom told me from the time I was little, I assumed that they were absolutely essential and that I needed to follow these things. And then as I got older, I began to realize, well, maybe I don't have to follow those things anymore. I'm so thankful for a wise mother who told me all kinds of helpful things from brushing my teeth to put on your jacket because I'm cold. That one I don't always follow anymore, but my mom would give me all kinds of advice. She cared about me just like Leah read in Isaiah 66, 13, where it says, like the comfort of a mother is the comfort that God gives to us. There's something about a mother's comfort. There's something about a mother's advice in our lives that is crucial. And yet as we get older, somehow we begin to shrug parts of it off. Like the advice about the jacket. I don't always wear a jacket when my mom's cold anymore. And there's other advice, though, that I wish that I had continued to follow that my mom had given me. You know, when we decided to move out to California. I was 10 years old. It was 1995. And we were moving out to California. And my mom was really worried about coming to California. We lived on the East Coast. And there's kind of this picture of California, especially for conservative Christians on the East Coast, that California is the liberal state. And I guess maybe we are. She had people telling her, you know, that's the land of fruits and nuts out there. You're going to raise your kids there, you're in big trouble. How are you going to raise your kids to love Jesus there? She would tell my dad, I don't see why we have to move to California. My son's going to end up wearing a leather jacket and carrying a stiletto. I think she was thinking of maybe what a bad guy was like years ago. I'm not sure. But she was sure that it might cause problems for us to live in California. So I remember the day, we'd been in California for several years when it was finally time for me to start going to high school. And as I was going to high school, my mom told me something. She said, okay, you can go to this school if you promise me something. You can play football, you can do all these things at the school if you promise me this one thing. Well, every day, you take your Bible and you spend time with Jesus. I said, of course, Mom, yeah, I want to go to the school. So yeah, of course, Mom, I'll do that. So just take time with Jesus every day. I wish that I'd hung on and clung to that advice. I wish that throughout my high school experience that even when football practice was at 6 a.m. and I had to leave our house at 5 because of the long drive to get there, I wish that the first thing I thought of was, well, I better get up at 4.30 and make sure I have that time with Jesus before football practice. I wish that I'd clung to my mother's advice. 
But there's some times where you think, well, maybe that's just a little too difficult. Maybe it's not really important. Maybe she didn't really mean every day. And there's advice that Jesus gives us. There are commandments that Jesus gives us in Matthew chapter 5. Go with me to Matthew chapter 5. And when we read through these things, sometimes it's tempting to think, well, maybe Jesus... Uh, maybe he meant something different, or maybe this wasn't really his intention for us. I'm not sure that this is really God's plan for me. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus begins to give this beautiful sermon on the mount where he really expounds upon all of the law and all of the prophets in this one brief sermon. He unpacks all of his will and his plan and his commandments for our lives and he shows us how broad and how deep, how vast is the love of God and how broad and how deep are the commandments that he's given us. Just look at... uh, In the the latter part of Matthew chapter 5, he begins to unpack the commandments, and in verse 43 says this, you have heard it that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So in the first part of this verse, he's quoting from Leviticus, and then in the, the next part of it, he's quoting from what the, the scribes and Pharisees would say, but you can actually hate your enemy. But then he goes on to say, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. He even breaks droughts in liberal California. Right? We've had a lot of rain this year. Even though we're not necessarily following God as a state, he's been pouring out rain There's all kinds of blessings that come to California despite the ways that we are living. That's the way your Father in heaven is, Jesus says. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Then he says this, verse 48. Now this is a verse that people want to shy away from that that seems terrifying sometimes. Therefore, you shall be what? Perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Wow. Jesus, far from denigrating what the law says, far from lowering the standard, Jesus is saying, I want for you to be perfect, perfectly merciful, perfectly loving, perfectly like your Father in heaven. That's my dream for you. That's what you are to become. That's why back earlier on when it it says in, in verse 17, do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle will by any means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Jesus didn't come to denigrate the law, to lower the standard But instead, he goes step by step and he raises the bar. He shows how beautiful, how deep is the character of God. And then he calls you and I to live that same character in our lives. Then he goes on, verse 19. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so, he shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. 
but whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the context in which he goes into saying that you should love your neighbor and your enemy. He goes through step by step and breaks down what the scribes say and then says, well, actually, you need to be even more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees. Verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Just to be angry, he says, you've already committed murder in your heart. Then he breaks down adultery in verse 27. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is taking the law to a whole nother level. Jesus is saying, not only should you not commit adultery, but if you're doing it in your heart, it's, it's a heart matter. What's taking place in your heart is what I'm concerned about. And then after breaking down the law, Jesus goes on to say, you should be perfect just like your Father in heaven is perfect. Talk about a high standard. Sometimes we think, well, we just need to focus more on Jesus and the gospel And I think we do. And as we do, we're going to realize that He calls us to a standard that is incredibly high. So how do we follow what Jesus has called us to do? I love what takes place immediately after the Sermon on the Mount. If you go to Matthew chapter 8, it begins this story of what took place immediately after the Sermon on the Mount. And interestingly enough, when Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount, let's actually look at this first. In chapter 7 and verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Jesus says that it's not just about confessing and saying that he's Lord. It's not just about believing in who he is. There's something more than that. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who will build his house on the rock. Jesus says what matters is that the things which you're taught, the things which are recorded in Scripture, the things which Jesus has given us, that we actually live those out. Not just that we assent to who God is, not just that we assent to what Jesus has done for us, but that we actually allow His righteousness to come in and fill us and allow Him to live out His life within us. But what does that look like? How is that possible? I mean, how often do we fall so far short of that? We talked about that last week, how we aim at trying to do this in our own strength, just like I tried to jump over that badminton net and it turned out so terrible for me. If we, in our prideful ways, think that somehow we could ever accomplish the law, Jesus has raised the bar so high as to let us know that it is absolutely impossible for us ever to do this in our own strength. We cannot keep the commandments of God on our own. But I love the story in Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. 
Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him. Now whenever you read a story in the Gospels, don't just read it in one of the Gospels. Go and compare the different Gospels and the different facets that are there because as you read it, you get different perspectives. It's kind of like taking a diamond and looking at it from every different angle to see different beauties and facets that come out in that gem. So go over, keep your finger in Matthew chapter 8 if you're there, and go over to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 in verse 1, we pick up the same story. It's right again after uh, what they call in Luke's gospel being the sermon on the plain because he's not on a mountain in that one, but he's giving some of the same instructions. Aims, ends with that same instruction about doing the will of God, making a person wise. And then in verse 1 it says this, Now when he had concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum, and a centurion's servants a certain centurion servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. Now this already tells us something amazing about this centurion because the Romans considered their servants as slaves who were completely devoid of human nature. They would buy and sell their slaves. They would beat their slaves. They did not treat them with the same kind of respect and regard that God had entreated that the Israelites would would treat their servants. That's not how Romans normally treated servants. But notice how this man is considering his servant. What does it say about him? His servant who was dear to him. He had this heart of love for this servant, this menial slave who he could have just bought and sold and nobody would have thought anything of it, who he could have beat to do his work. And yet this servant, he loves this servant. He cares about this servant And his servant is sick. It was dear to him. His servant was dear to him. Verse 3. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. So this centurion doesn't go on his own to Jesus, but he gets the elders of the Jews and says, hey, maybe you guys know Jesus, right? You could go and you could tell Jesus that I have a servant who's sick and who's in need of your healing touch. And look at what the, the, they do. If, if you read how they come to Jesus in verse 4, it says, and when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly. They're begging Jesus You've got to do this. And, and what's the reasoning that they give? They beg Jesus earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was what? Deserving. This centurion, he deserves it. This centurion, he's done everything to be entitled to this miracle, Jesus. You should come. You should heal this man because he deserves for you to do this. Why? They go on to tell a little bit more. Verse 5, For He loves our nation, and He has built us a synagogue. This is one of those wealthy centurions who has embraced the Jewish faith, and He has loved our nation. He's embraced what we believe to the extent that He's actually built us a synagogue. He's one of the founders of the church. He's he's one of those people that that has been there. He's one of those people that deserves for God to show up in his life. Have you ever seen somebody get sick who you wonder why God would allow them to get sick? 
I mean, they were in church every week. They were an elder in the church. They were faithful in serving. They were, why would God allow this to happen to them? Is that how God processes things for us? Here, this centurion, the, the Jews, they have this reasoning of saying, you know what? This guy is worthy. Jesus should come and heal his servants because this guy has done a lot of good deeds. So as we continue reading in verse 6, then Jesus went with them. Jesus doesn't immediately respond saying, what are you talking about this guy is worthy? Do you know the sins he's committed in his life? Do you know that he's a Roman? He doesn't go into any of the things that he, he possibly could have said. But he goes with him. And when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent his friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned to him and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you that I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Jesus looks at this centurion. And we know, if we go back to to Matthew chapter 8, that that the centurion actually eventually comes to him. First he sends friends, and then eventually he comes himself to Jesus, and he just has to tell Jesus, I am not worthy. The elders hadn't gotten the message across, apparently, that he had intended to get across. And somehow he realizes that Jesus is going to actually come to his house. And he says, I'm not worthy of this. He recognizes his worthlessness in the eyes of the Creator of the universe, uh, not his worthlessness, I shouldn't say that, but he recognizes his desperate need and he recognizes that he, because of his life of sin, is really unworthy of Jesus coming and doing this for him. Matthew chapter 8 captures a little bit more of how Jesus responds in verse 10. It says, When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do wonderful miracles in your name? And they'll say, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I have to know, what is this great faith that the centurion had? Because faith is essential to be able to have a saving relationship with Jesus. Faith is something that we don't just want to, to assume that we have saving faith. There is something vital in our lives that we understand the power of faith. love what it says in the book, Faith and Works. This is a, a great book to pick up and get a copy of if you get a chance. Faith and Works, page 18. It says, There is not a point that needs to be dwelt upon more earnestly 
repeatedly, or repeated more frequently, or established more firmly in the minds of all than the impossibility of fallen man meriting anything by his own best good works. Salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. There's nothing more important than for us to understand that salvation comes through faith in Jesus alone. And yet, Jesus has called us to this incredibly high standard. He's called us to live a life that's perfect as His heavenly Father is perfect. He's called us to live a life that's a life of loving our enemies, of turning the other cheek, a life that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes. So what can we learn from the experience of the centurion that will help us to have saving faith in our lives? Lesson number one from the centurion is to recognize our unworthiness. To recognize that we serve the God of the universe who created us and that we are a part of the human race that has rebelled against God. We have given up all rights that we have to life by living a life of sin. We've given up any right that we have, any, even to take, take, a, take a deep breath of air right now. Everybody, I just want you to breathe in deeply. Look outside and you see the sunshine shining down. Jesus said that God makes the the rain to come, the sun to shine. He gives us air to breathe. He gives us every morsel of food that we have. We are completely undeserving of any of that. So any strength that I have in my body to serve Jesus, any strength that I have to keep His commandments, Did that come from me? I am a creature. I love what it says in um, the book Faith and Works. Again, this is page uh, 24. It says, If you would gather together everything that is good and holy and noble and lovely in man, and then present the subject to the angels of God as acting a part in the salvation of the human soul or in merit, the proposition would be rejected as treason. Standing in the presence of their Creator and looking upon the unsurpassed glory which enshrouds His person. We read Revelation 4 at the beginning. Holy, 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 they say. They veil their faces. They veil their feet. These angelic, holy, perfect beings in the presence of the Creator of the universe recognize a holiness that they can not stand to look upon. And so if they saw standing in the presence of their Creator, looking upon the unsurpassed glory which enshrouds His person, they are looking upon the Lamb of God given from the foundation of the world to a life of humiliation, to be rejected of sinful men, to be despised, to be crucified. Who can measure the infinity of the sacrifice? Who can measure the sacrifice that Jesus has made for us? So for us to think that we could possibly add anything to the gift that Jesus has given us would be seen by the watching universe as treason. It makes no sense. It's it's ridiculous to think that a creature could merit anything for his salvation because in him we live and move and have our being. If it wasn't for his creative power we could have never had one single heartbeat. So the first lesson that we learn from the centurion is to recognize our utter unworthiness of even being in the presence of Jesus. But the second lesson that we learn from this story 
is that Jesus loves the unworthy. Jesus comes to the unworthy. Those who are are telling Jesus not to come, He keeps on coming until finally the man has to come to Him and tell Him, look, just don't come. I'm not even worthy. All that you need to have the grace of Jesus Christ in your life is to recognize your need of a Savior. If you recognize your need, like we talked about last week, God resists the proud. 1 Peter 5.5 says God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. When we recognize our need, when we see that we don't have what it takes, we recognize that we need a Savior. Then it goes on to say, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares upon Him, for He cares for you. He cares for you. Do you worry about your salvation? Do you wonder if you're going to be righteous enough? If you measure up, you can cast all of those cares upon Jesus, for He cares for you. And He longs to work in you to will and to do of His good pleasure. He longs to fulfill His promises to you. And how do we live the life that Jesus has called us? The, sec- the third lesson that we learn from the centurion is what he says to Jesus. He says, for I am a man under authority. Just speak the word. I understand that, that you have authority, Jesus. He believed in Jesus and in Jesus' word. There is creative power in the word of God. That's why when the psalmist, after he had committed that egregious sin with Bathsheba and then murdering Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite, as he prays that prayer in Psalm 51, be merciful to me, O God, be gracious to me, have compassion on me, forgive me. As he goes through that prayer for forgiveness, finally in the middle of the psalm, verse 10, he says, create in me a clean heart. He's crying out to the Creator. He's asking for God to do something in him that it was not possible for him to do in himself. And God does that. God creates in David a clean heart. He renews a right spirit in him. He leads him in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And he's able to say, David is a man after my own heart. Not because of David's righteousness. David was a sinful man, but Jesus imparted his righteousness to David and David became an entirely different person. The centurion believed that there was power in the Word of God. The centurion believed that when God spoke, things happened. And the centurion believed that this humble carpenter named Jesus who was going around and teaching, though he had never seen Him in person before, he believed that if he only spoke the Word, that his servant could be healed. There's power in the Word of God. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Paul is rejoicing in what's taking place in the Thessalonian church. And as he remarks on what's happened in the church, this is why such powerful things have happened. In verse 13, he says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing. He says, I'm constantly giving thanks for what's taking place in Thessalonica, how the church is exploding, how all of the Christian gospel is going to the world from Thessalonica. I constantly give thanks to God without ceasing. 
Because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God which also effectively works in you who believe. Don't miss that. If we come to the Bible and we read it simply as, well, this is what Paul said, or this is what Peter said, and and we just read it as this book that's come down through human hands, and we don't recognize that this is the Word of God which has creative power, that God cannot lie, and that when He says, you shall be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, that He intends to fulfill that Word in our lives, that He intends to create in us a clean heart as we humble ourselves as a little child and let Him hold us in His arms. As we cast all of our cares upon Him, for He cares for us, He wants to fulfill all of that in our lives. You heard this word from us, not just as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works. There's working power in the word of God. The word of God is transformative. It changes who we are. Paul wrote something similar to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. All scripture is given by God, by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Every good work that's listed in the Bible, every good thing that God has called you to do in loving your enemy, those things that seem absolutely impossible for you to do, to love that boss at work who is so grating on your nerves. To love that coworker who gives you no end of frustration. To love your parents who don't respect uh, your following after God. To love that neighbor who never mows his lawn. Whatever it might be in your life that, that seems so difficult that God has called you to do, He promises that through His promises, through the living power of His Word, as you, like the centurion, embrace Jesus as a man of authority, that His Word is powerful, that it is creative, and as you depend upon His promises, you simply lean into the promises of God. He promises to work in you to will and to do of His good pleasure. Again, Peter records something very similar in uh, his letter in 1 Peter chapter 2. Actually, sorry, First Peter chapter 1 and verse 22. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. That sounds good. We recognize that we want to live that way as Christians, and yet it can be very difficult. But then he gives us the secret as to how that takes place. Verse 23, Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the Word of God which lives and abides forever. The Word of God is seed that's sown into our hearts and it abides forever and it bears fruit in our lives. Because all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flowers fall away but the word of the Lord endures forever. 
He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 40 where God is revealing His incredible glory and the power of His Word in comparison to man who's just like grass who fades away. There's power in the Word of God. It transforms our lives in powerful ways. Now this is the Word which by the Gospel was preached to you. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, And all evil speaking as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. There's growth that takes place when we desire the word of God, when we allow the word of God to be planted in our lives. And really, this is how we humble ourselves as little children. A child listens to the instructions of their parent. As they get older, they begin to think that they no longer have the responsibility of following what their mom or dad has said. I remember as I got older, I began to expect that if my dad asked me to do anything, I should get paid for it. Maybe you've had a child like that before. I thought, well, sure, I'll change your oil if you give me 20 bucks. I'll take out the trash if you give me $5. Pretty soon I had this determination that I wasn't going to do anything unless I was paid for it. But how crazy is that, really? I mean, I only had strength to take out the trash because my dad had gone to work for years and provided the money so that I could eat and have the energy and strength that built the muscles to be able to carry the trash. I threatened, I talked about last week, to, to leave home, to move out, and I was going to drive away in the car that my parents had given me. I lived in a home that my parents had given me. I, I, they took care of my school bill. They took care of so many different things in my life. And yet, when they asked me to do something, I didn't think I had a responsibility to do it. How much more egregious is it for us as creatures, children of, of the king of the universe, when he asks us to do something, to not trust that he knows what's best for us and to follow in doing what he tells us to do. God is longing to fulfill his word in our life. God's longing for people who will take him at his word like the centurion and say, your word is powerful. You are a man of authority. I believe that your word is going to change this corrupt heart. Create in me a clean heart. God is longing for people who will humbly follow the word of God. It talks about in uh, the book Desire of Ages, page 535, it says, Natural impossibilities cannot prevent the work of the Omnipotent One. God is all-powerful. We can cast all of our cares upon Him knowing that He cares for us because He's omnipotent. He has all the power in the universe. Skepticism and unbelief are not humility. Implicit belief in Christ's Word is true humility, true self-surrender. This is what God calls us to. To humbly submit to His Word and say, God, You've called me to this, and so I believe that You're going to work in me to will and to do of Your good pleasure. I believe that's what it means in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, where it says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, because it is God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. 
He does it through the power of His Word, which creates in us the very things that He asks us to do. Education, page 126, says this, The creative energy that called the worlds into existence is in the Word of God. This Word implants power. It begets life. Every command is a promise. Accepted by the will, received into the soul, it brings with it the life of the Infinite One. Peter says, you are partakers of the divine nature by these promises that are given to you. It transforms the nature and recreates the soul in the image of God. The life thus imparted is in like manner sustained by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God shall man live. There's power in the Word of God. Power that changes our hearts, that makes us into new creations in Christ Jesus. And this is how mountains can be moved in our lives. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus repeats that incredible promise that He gave about moving mountains, but He he puts a little twist on it this time. Go to Luke chapter 17 if you have your Bible. We'll look at this where Jesus again gives this promise about what He will do in answer to prayer. Luke chapter 17, the apostles say to Him something that I think we should all be asking, knowing the value of faith, knowing the importance of faith. Verse 5, He says, And the apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. Would you help us to have greater faith, greater belief in who you are, Jesus, and what you can do in my life? Would you increase my faith? What an incredible prayer to pray. That's a life-changing prayer to pray. Notice how Jesus answers. The first part makes a lot of sense. And then as we jump into the next part, we again are reminded of the story of the centurion. Verse 6, So the Lord said, If you have faith as a mustard seed. That was one of the tiniest seeds that they had. If you have faith of a quality like the mustard seed that has the the very life of the plant in it, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. So this is that same promise that he gave in Matthew chapter 17, except for this time it's not mountains that are moving, but this time it's mulberry trees that are moving. Mulberry trees with their their deep roots that, that seemed impossible to yank up. Jesus says, that's no problem. You could say to that tree, be pulled up and be planted in the sea. It's the same way with our hearts. You may feel like your heart is so entangled around the stuff of this world. You may feel like your heart is so entangled around selfishness, about only being able to think about your own needs, your own desires. You may feel like there's lust in your heart that that you don't know how to root that stuff out of your heart. Jesus says if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to that mulberry tree, be taken up and be planted into the sea. You may feel like there's a root of bitterness in your heart. There's somebody that you have hatred in your heart towards and you don't know how to love your enemy. You can say to that tree, be taken up and be planted in the sea if you just have living faith. If you just have the Word of God implanted in your heart. If you are clinging to His promises and trusting in His promises, depending upon His promises to accomplish the very thing that He's commanded you to do. And then Jesus goes on to say this. Now, For a long time, I did not understand why this parable was here. But let's see if we can make some sense out of it. Jesus continues. He's going on with the idea of increasing their faith, something that we all want. He says, And which of you, having a servant 
plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat. Now this was not something that they would do with a servant apparently because he goes on in verse 8 and says, but will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. Now this is not saying that this is how God deals with us, but it is giving us the idea of if a servant and master should, should if a servant should feel okay with having to do these things and, and, and to not even get any thanks, should we expect God to do anything as a reward for our works? That's why Isaiah said, your works are as filthy rags. Your righteousness is as filthy rags. It it merits nothing in the kingdom of heaven. Only the obedience of Jesus merits anything in the kingdom of heaven. And he longs to fill our hearts and to empower us to live that same life. Then verse 10 says this, so likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, when, when you are perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, something that we won't recognize on this planet. As we get closer and closer to Jesus, we'll recognize more and more our desperate need for a Savior. But as we get closer and closer to Jesus, as He places that seal in our hearts and He transforms us to be perfect as His Father and as the Father in heaven is perfect, so you, likewise, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say this, We are unprofitable servants. We're unworthy, God. We're unworthy of all your grace, all your mercy, all that you've done for us. We are so unworthy of this. We have done only what was our duty to do. Friends, there is power in humble reliance upon God. There's power in recognizing our unworthiness of the grace of God because this is what will bring salvation. Ephesians chapter 2, very familiar verse, but so powerful. Ephesians chapter 2 in verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved. How does grace come? God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. When we cast all of our cares upon Him, when we depend upon Him as a humble child wrapped in its mother's arms, casting all your cares upon him. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. There is absolutely no boasting in the kingdom of heaven. When we are on the sea of glass, there will be no one there who says, yeah, I'm entitled to this. Yes, I deserve this. I should be here because of all that I've done. But on that day, we will only be there because of the cross of Jesus Christ, because he took our sins to the cross, because he's our intercessor in heaven, and because he's in our, our intercessor, we can come with boldness to the throne of grace to obtain mercy and to find grace to help in time of need. This is what God longs for our lives. And then verse 10, it continues, it says this, For we are His workmanship. You are His creation. He has designed you for a purpose. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which 
God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He already has a plan for you to live perfectly as your heavenly Father. He already has a plan for you to fulfill the Ten Commandments. He already has a plan for you to love that unloving person, unlovable person in your life. He's already created those good works for you. And the power comes through relying upon Jesus as a person of authority, as our God who has authority, whose word is creative and can transform our hearts. How I long to live such a life of faith. How I long for God to look at me, to look at us and to say, wow, there is a person of great faith. When Jesus looks at the crowd, it says that he marveled at the faith of this centurion who simply recognized his unworthiness, who recognized the power of Jesus' word and allowed that to work with power in his life. Talking about the power of recognizing our unworthiness, in the book Ministry of Healing, it says this, page 182, nothing is apparently more helpless yet really more invincible than the soul that feels its nothingness and relies wholly on the merits of the Savior. Nothing more invincible than that. Nothing as unstoppable as a person that recognizes that Jesus has what it takes to lead you in paths of righteousness. By prayer, by the study of His Word, by faith in His abiding presence, the weakest of human beings may live in contact with the living Christ and He will hold them by a hand that will never let them go. He's got plans for your life. Invincible plans. He wants for the enemy to have no place in your life. He wants for the world to have no place in your life. He wants to Root up all of those roots of bitterness, all of those roots of lust, all those things in your life. And I know this because of some of the things I've seen God do in my life. I remember the day when I had to break some news to Leah. We were talking on the phone. We dated for a little over a year at this point. We were getting pretty serious about marriage and I was realizing that I was probably going to ask her to be my wife. And I realized that there were some things in my life, some mistakes that I'd made, that she deserved to know as my future wife. And I remember that conversation as we talked about those roots of lust, those things in my life that, that could have been so extremely hurtful to her. I remember her simply clinging to a simple promise of Jesus and saying, Zach, you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old is gone and the new has come. I can't tell you what that did for me. To have somebody share a promise of God with me like that and to recognize that she had no reason to trust me. She had no reason to believe in who I was because who I was was somebody that could have hurt her deeply. But she believed that there was a transformative power of the Word of God and that it was changing my heart. She gave me some scripture cards and I remember some of them like Psalm 119 that says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. Your word have I hid in my heart that I may not sin against you. And on the front of those scripture cards that she gave me, it said, To my word warrior, love your word warrior. 
There's power in the Word of God. God was able to root up those roots of lust, those things in my heart that could have hurt our relationship, and He did it through His power, not mine. I tried for 10 years before that desperately to time after time to get out of, out of those habits, out of those addictions. But there's power in the Word of God. There's power in complete surrender to Jesus Christ. There's power when we recognize that we don't have what it takes, but that Jesus is a God of the universe who has all authority in heaven and on earth and that He's given us the creative power of His Word. As we pray together, I just want to invite you just to raise your hand simply to heaven and to say, God, I want your power in my life. I want to appreciate your word. I want to, to feed on it. I want to recognize that I don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I want to treasure your word as the creative power that it is. I want to plant those seeds in my heart every day. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning not having anything good to offer, recognizing that our very best efforts are meaningless. They're worthless. They really profit nothing in the kingdom of heaven. But we thank you that you have promised us your righteousness. That you've promised us that there is power in your promises that we can become partakers of the divine nature. Father, would you pour out your Holy Spirit on us today? Would you fill our hearts with a hunger for righteousness? Would you fill our hearts with a hunger for your word? Give us solid commitments as we go from here. Solid commitments to not let a day go past without eating of your word and allowing it to be life and strength to our entire being. Father, bless my friends as they go from this place to fix their eyes on Jesus who alone is the author and perfecter of their faith. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.